0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another edition of Shano's Brainos. Long-time listeners of Eat the Rich will note that it's been just over a year since the last one of these. Um, sorry about that. And as you can probably already tell from the title, today we're dealing with the anniversary of yet another horrible tragedy. This time, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to just state, um, uh, I believe as I mentioned last time, it was never my intention to frame these solo episodes um, merely as like anniversary commemorations of some awful human trauma. Um, In fact, I have had the outlines for a few other ideas in the bank for a while now, but inevitably it takes a lot of extra time to put something like this together. And it becomes easy to put off doing certain topics I feel I could do at any time but less easy to dismiss the topics I feel are prescient now I bring all this up in part as a way to be a little bit open about the process I mean you know pull back the curtain if you're listening to this you're a you know you're a patron um, here's how the sausage gets made etc etc but there are two more important and interconnected reasons for this kind of Reflection at the start. The first is that this episode is going to be less of a historical info dump than the previous Shano's Brainos. Uh, I considered for a long time how to structure this and what to bring up. And the more I compiled, the more it occurred to me that so many of the details of the events of September eleventh, two 2001 themselves have already been so thoroughly scrutinized and analyzed and canonized and contested by a slew of expert journalists and historians who are much smarter than me and an even larger number of despicable politicians and bastards whose ideas are not worth giving air to. Um, on top of that, the unbelievable dramatic timing of the collapse of America's imperial adventure in Afghanistan has made it so that leading up to today, and I'm sure for the next few months or so, probably for the rest of our lives, we'll all be sinking under a deluge of ever more detailed catalogs of the tragedy and cost of 9 11's legacy. To be clear, I think this information is important, sometimes even vitally important. It's just not what I feel I could do best today. So throughout my little spiel, I'm going to allude to some specific details and hopefully point interested parties in the right direction of the people I think are worth listening to and reading right now. But this episode itself is not going to be a comprehensive overview of the facts, quote unquote. Instead, it's going to be a lot more speculative. Which brings me to the second reason for this long, reflective preamble. Unlike the other topics I've covered in the Shano's Brainos thus far, 9-11 was not some distant event in the past that has long been forgotten. It's something that I, and I assume most of the listeners here, have lived through. We're still living through its legacy. It's a living memory. I lived through it. I was there that day. I watched it all go down, literally and and figuratively. Um, It's also very personal to me. Uh... Again, I, I I was quite young uh, and, you know, I had g- grown up in lower Manhattan and, and uh, to witness that was uh, very, very deeply traumatic and, and definitely shaped a lot of the rest of my life. Um, and now that being said, it's important to not get too navel-gazy here. And we're all familiar with the notion that everyone in our generation and older has their own 9-11 story, right? It's this, like, collectively experienced media event, <laughs> If anything else, um, it's sort of similar to the way that a generation or two before I was born, everyone had their where were you when JFK got shot kind of story. If you ever talk to your older relatives, right? Like people all talk about, oh, you know, this is what I was doing in my life and this time. And, you know, the, the purpose of having this reflection is, is not to do that or not to turn it into a, a story about me or any other specific individual, but instead to consider. And this is really the point of um reflection that i want to offer today um and and to dwell on is what does it mean to live through history it's one thing to study history right it's one thing to look at history as such right like the things that have happened before you came around right things that you then can uncover maybe even and that's for me, it always has been the joy of, of studying and learning about history, right? Like you find out all this information, this information that makes it all make sense, right? Or sometimes makes it make no sense. But what does it mean when you're actually living through it? It's very hard to categorize, right? This is like historicization, right? This is the problem of when events are happening, like how do they become history? What is the mechanism in which they become history? Why do certain events seem historical and others not? Um, and that's where I'm going to start us with today, and uh, I'm going to talk about the notion of 9-11 being this sort of, like, living history that probably, again, most of us have lived through, and then walk through its its legacy, and, and where we're at now with it, um, and before I, I do that, I guess I'll just... At the start of all of this, I'll, I'll give you the sound bite, <laughs> the, the easy one. If you want the sort of condensed, like, kind of political angle on this, um, this is what I have to say on it, right? The attacks on September 11th, 2001, were a monumental human tragedy. But then the collective trauma of these events were mythologized and used as political props by a reactionary political clique to justify a massive imperial expansion which generated human suffering on such a scale to make what happened on 9-11 itself pale in comparison. 20 years later, we continue to live in the wake of the disastrous decisions made then and now under the guise of America's so-called war on terror, which terrorizes and immiserates the entire world in incalculable ways. That's the headline, folks. Um, so with that out of the way, uh let's turn to this notion that I have of, of living through history and think about um the history of political ideas, right? Like because what it means to live through history is a contested one. It's an it's an open one. We might have different assumptions about it. And I think an easy knee-jerk response to that question um is and I and I think a lot of people have had this. And certainly if you if you never had this before in your life in the cascading crises we've had over the last couple of years, you it must have percolated at some point is is that sense of like living in the end times, right? It's like, oh, what is my place in history? What what is my relationship to the grand scheme of the timeline of all human events? It's like I must be living towards the end of these things, right? Um and that is too easy right it's it's too simple to simply jump to that and i try to catch myself all the time and when i go off on my own apocalyptic uh uh tangents um and the, uh, for me i've always associated that with a somewhat kind of adolescent view right it's like um you think in an epochal sense right like oh i i live in an epoch i live in a monumental the most important epoch and whatever's happening in my time right now uh is the defining thing of all human history or or the end and so again i you know i i call this a slightly adolescent maneuver um maybe perhaps for myself that's when i first kind of went through that uh very strongly um and you you grow and you mature you learn a little bit more about history realize like okay i'm probably not living through the end times Uh, you know i'm personally not that important um and i'm certainly not gonna write a 30 page essay about that that's going to go ahead and define the next 30 40 years of uh political thinking what 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 so uh what if we are living in the end of history this is an idea that comes to us first uh most strongly in the American mind through this guy, Francis Fukuyama. So let's talk about his essay, The End of History. It was written in 1989. So the basic premise of The End of History essay and idea is that... Standing from the vantage point of the end of the 20th century, all the great struggles of the past have more or less wrapped up in a big victory for American slash Western European capitalist liberalism. The simplest way to render this argument, and to be clear, the argument itself is very simplistic as it is, is that the 20th century was the battle between three competing visions of the world fascism, communism, and capitalism slash democracy liberalism so first communism and uh, liberalism ganged up to beat fascism and then they fought the cold war amongst themselves and then liberal capitalism won woohoo go capitalism reading here directly from near the beginning of the text um quote what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the cold war or the passing of a particular period of post-war history but the end of history as such That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. This is not to say that there will no longer be events to fill the pages of Foreign Affairs yearly summaries of international relations, for the victory of liberalism has occurred primarily in the realm of ideas, or consciousness, and is as yet incomplete in the real or material world. But there are powerful reasons for believing that it is the ideal that will govern the material world in the long run, end quote." Um, I like that. This isn't even my final form uh, line there. but like so the idea is that this apparent victory of Western capitalism is seen not merely as the product of contingent historical moments and political choices that led to that point, but almost as this inevitability. An easy way to think of this is sort of like American exceptionalism on steroids, (laughs) that the uniqueness of the great American way was destined to be not just the dominant but only real contender for dominion over the entire world. Furthermore, the second part of that paragraph indicates that what Fukuyama is really proposing is that there will be no more future alternatives. American capitalist democracy is the way that society will be organized from here on out on a global scale, and the only remaining history as such is essentially an imperial mop-up, wherein all the countries and societies not currently molded in the Western fashion will slowly but surely come into the fold. Um... I think I don't need to cue you in, dear listener, that this is all more or less hogwash. Um, Again, it's a very simplistic and self-legitimizing narrative. Uh, It's very much written as a sort of fever pitch wherein you declare that, like, the victory means that you're not only always destined to win, but also the fact that you won means the game is over forever, The actual meat of the text, where Fukuyama attempts to bolster his claims, is not particularly well-argued either. Um, There's a long and meandering section on Hegel, (laughs) and it's over halfway through before he provides any details about the history... And what's there is all big stroke stuff. Um, It's basically what I mentioned before. The other contenders for the world stage, fascism and communism, were internally contradictory and fell apart due to their own failures. But capitalism is just too good to resist because people want consumer goods and liberal constitutions, etc. History is over. Buy a fucking Kit Kat. Um, Ironically enough, towards the end of this piece, Fukuyama mentions that moving forward there are only two possible things that might challenge this new and permanent international liberal order. One, the resurgence of religious fundamentalism, and two, the resurgence of ethno-nationalism. And so you can probably guess why well, I find those particularly funny. <laughs> um, and we'll get back to some of that later. But even here in this like, concession, Fukuyama is basically saying, yes, these might prove to be minor problems, but in the end, liberalism and capitalism are just so good, destined to reign supreme, and they'll barely be bothered by any new developments. So this essay comes out in an international relations journal called The National Interest in 1989. By the way, the founder of that journal, Irving Kristol, is considered the godfather of neoconservatism. So you can probably see where we're going with this and why I'm talking about it for so long. But sticking uh, with Fukuyama for the moment, he publishes this piece. It's a hit with the right people at the right time. I'd argue probably also just based on the audacity of the title alone. It got some legs. And as it's being circulated, the Soviet Union and its satellite countries in Eastern Europe are going through the stages of revolution, collapse, dissolution, all of which seems to prove Fukuyama right, again, to the right people. And he gets his 15 minutes of fame. He ends up turning this essay into a book in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man, which I have not read and I don't really care to, um... (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, the popularity of Fukuyama's end of history in the international relations think tank circle of DC is certainly in part due to the fact that it told a self-congratulatory story to the imperial establishment. In the way, it's like the essence of imperial myth, a sort of declaration of a Pax Americana, our empire's enemies lay at our feet, defeated, and now we shall reign for a thousand years in peace. But as much as the Hogs enjoyed that slop... The latter thought there was discomforting to some. I mean, if history is over and peace is declared, how the hell are we supposed to justify ourselves? So, simultaneous to the end of history being praised, it also becomes hotly debated. And into this debate steps this guy, Samuel Huntington, with an essay in 1993 published in Foreign Affairs called The Clash of Civilizations. In looking this back up for this episode, it was amusing to me to see that this piece actually started as a talk Huntington gave to the American Enterprise Institute, which we all know and love. Um, So the piece itself is framed as a direct response to the end-of-history idea. And it offers instead that the big contests of history are not actually over, but have moved into a new stage. The basic premise is that for the past few hundred years of history— uh, you know, world powers have progressed through a series of eras defined by certain types of conflicts. First between ruling dynasties, then nation states, then ideologies, sort of like the Fukuyama idea. And now at the end of the Cold War, we have reached the level of civilizations. Ooh. So if these categories seem both Western-centric and entirely arbitrary, that's because they are, Huntington dedicates a good amount of this piece to these weird cultural axioms based on what I would argue are just, like, fundamentally racist notions of essentialism. Uh, Take, for example, this part, and here he's kind of explaining his notion of civilizations, um, quote, The culture of a village in southern Italy may be different from that of a village in northern Italy, but both will share in a common Italian culture that distinguishes them from German villages. European communities, in turn, will share cultural features that distinguish them from Arab or Chinese communities. Arabs, Chinese, and Westerners, however, are not part of any broader cultural entity. They constitute civilizations. A civilization is thus the highest cultural grouping of people and the broadest level of cultural identity people have short of that which distinguishes humans from other species. Note, yeah, that like he doesn't even take into account the idea of like a, a common humanity. Um but returning here, uh, it is defined both by common objective elements such as language, history, religion, customs, institutions, and by the subjective self-identification of people. People have levels of identity. A resident of Rome may define himself with varying degrees of intensity as a Roman, an Italian, a Catholic, a Christian, a European, a Westerner. The civilization to which he belongs is the broadest level of identification with which he intensely identifies. People can and do redefine their identities and As a result, the composition and boundaries of civilizations change, end quote. Um, Yeah, you know, reading stuff like this always makes me realize, man, if you're well-connected, you can just write any shit off the top of your head without any evidence at all, right? There's like no underlying theoretical basis for this. He's just like talking out of his ass, but... In any case, Huntington's notion is that the highest level of human cooperation or solidarity are these civilizations, again, with no room for universal solidarity or whatever, and now that ideologies have been fought out of the picture, and again, this is arbitrary, what is this concept of civilization, if not, you know, pure ideology to begin with, but now that all those ideologies have been fought out, what's left are the civilizations and they're going to clash. So what are these civilizations themselves? And ah, uh, here we've come to the good part. If you're around a computer while listening to this, I highly recommend you do a Google image search of Clash of Civilizations map. And keep that handy, because here's where it gets really fucking stupid. Um, so this is Huntington's little breakdown here. Quote, why civilizations will clash. Civilization identity will be increasingly important in the future, and the world will be shaped in large measure by the interactions among seven or eight major civilizations. These include Western, Confucian, Japanese, Islamic, Hindu, Slavic Orthodox, Latin American, and possibly African civilization. The most important conflicts of the future will occur along the fault lines separating these civilizations from one another. End quote. Um, so, I, I mean, very racist, <laughs> in my view. Uh, and let's take a look at each of these categories he's just sort of invented out of whole cloth. And again, if you have this map in front of you, now's the time to examine it. Um, so we have Western civilization, which is his way of saying North America, European allies to uh, United States. Then there's Confucian Civilization, which is just his racist way of saying China. We have Japanese Civilization, so I guess Japan is special enough to be its own thing. (laughs) Islamic Civilization, which includes everything from North Africa to the Arab world, the Middle East, Central Asia, and then Southeast Asia. Hindu Civilization, which again is just India. Slavic Orthodox, which means, like, Russia and the former Soviet states. Latin American Civilization, which is just Latin America, all of it, together. And, of course, my favorite, possibly Africa, he says, which is, for him, just all of Africa that isn't included under his already shitty umbrella of just, like, Islamic, right? Um, so, again, really fucking weird imperial racist garbage here. And stripped of all the euphemistic language, what this essay is arguing is that within these groups he's invented, especially all the non-Western ones, all the people are fundamentally the same. So if you're, say, Muslim, you're basically like all other Muslims, regardless of where you might have been born, this is essential to who you are, and furthermore, your way of life is fundamentally incompatible with others. So according to Huntington, these eight or seven or eight metagroups in the world that have Definite geographic boundaries, as well, are so essentially different that they're going to inevitably clash. And to be clear, by clash he does mean war. And so, to wrap up talking about this garbage essay, let me read some of the pullout quotes. So these are like you know decided by the editor, maybe him himself. Like what are the really important ideas? So here's just a couple of them. The quote: "The crescent-shaped Islamic block from the bulge of Africa to Central Asia has bloody borders." End quote. Here's another one. Quote, the West versus the rest. (laughs) And uh, there's a a lot of paranoia in this one. Check this one out, all right? Quote, a Confucian-Islamic connection has emerged to challenge Western interests, values, and power. End quote. Uh, Of course, all of our enemies are in league with one another, perhaps in some kind of axis of evildoers. Hmm. So... (sighs) What's going on here? We have these two similar but competing American visions for what the post-Cold War international order will look like, both coming out of this period of the late 80s and early 90s, and on the one hand, you have this argument that there's going to be the slow but steady integration of all the stubborn holdouts into the American way of life, and on the other hand, we have another century of civilizational conflict between the exceptional West and then the backwards and incompatible rest. Both dogshit ideas, both grasping at straws, both written by two deeply conservative foreign policy thinkers a decade before 9-11. So why the hell have I spent so much time talking about them? I think that these two essays articulate the dual poles of imperial thinking that have informed the last three decades of America's foreign policy decisions, especially since the September 11th attacks. I don't think Fukuyama or Huntington themselves bear, like, the lion's share of responsibility for any of those decisions, and it can be argued reasonably that, like, any philosopher of the court from history, (laughs) these guys are just writing shit out their ass, and then the powers that be are gonna do what they're gonna do regardless. But the empire does need legitimization. It does need to justify its actions in one manner or another. It needs, like, ideological rhetoric and tools to, like, explain what it wants to do. And both this idea of the end of history, and then the other one, the class of civilizations, were very easy for a great number of people to pick up and point to and say, hey, that, that's what we're doing. Insane ideas about how history works is the real stuff of ideology, and I didn't just pick these two pieces arbitrarily either, and pulling this together, I happened to glance at Huntington's Wikipedia page, and it says here right at the top, quote, According to the Open Syllabus Project, Huntington is the second most frequently cited author on college syllabi for political science courses, end quote. And it's worth mentioning that some of Huntington's later work includes a book from 2004 titled Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity, which I have not read, but appears to be a long-form argument that white Anglo-America is its own distinct ethnic national special thing, and immigration, especially Mexican and Central American immigration, threatens that national identity. Hmm, where have we heard that idea before? (laughs) Um, I also didn't know this, but apparently he also worked as a special advisor in some capacity to the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 1980s, so, you know, take that as you will, and he's dead. He died in 2008. (laughs) Um, Fukuyama is still around, though. Uh, he had a change of heart in, like, 2004. He tried to distance himself from the Bush administration and the War on Terror, which, if you hadn't guessed it already, he initially very enthusiastically supported, um, And then became a fan of Obama. I think like a few years ago, he did an interview where he went back and he was like, Oh yeah, end of history. I guess it's not ending. Maybe we should do a little social democracy or whatever. It was like in 2018. Um, A putz, ladies and gentlemen. That's at least my opinion. So why I've spent so much time talking about them is that these two guys' essays reflect, again, what I call the two poles of imperial thinking. The end of history is exceptionalism taken to the point of universality. Our empire is forever perfect and permanent, and all others will soon join. Clash of civilizations is the logic of endless siege. We are exceptional, and therefore we're under threat from those that we take exception to. Another way to think about this is like the hard and soft versions of imperialism, or better yet, the yo yo between Republican and Democratic administrations for the last 20 years. The George W. Bush clique ran with the hard version. There's a civilizational threat in Islamic extremism, and we have to fight it with immense military might, preemptive strikes, and long-term occupations. The Obama administration tweaked the formula to be less heavy-handed, but still fundamentally imperialist. Like, oh, terrorism is a serious threat, but not a civilizational one. We can deal with it secretly, without large ground wars, and just drone and assassinate the shit out of the Global South until they see the error in their ways and join the fold. Two different types of responses, which both share the underlying assumption that America is a unique and important empire that will be the master of this and all future time. So I'm going to segue now into talking somewhat more directly about these responses and their consequences. But before I do, a final thought on the end of history and the clash of civilizations the frame of this episode is this idea of what it means to live through history. And so we experience the big events in the world happening around us all the time. Sometimes we're aware of this, most of the times not. For the most part, history is like something that interrupts your daily life. Um, and you can ask Carrie about that. I'm interrupting her daily life all the time with shit from history. Um, but <clears throat> more seriously... There is on the one level the sense that our experiences and our memories of events are drawn from our imminent perceptive relationship to reality around us. This stuff is just happening to us, and we're reacting to it in such and such a way. But this is never an unmediated process, right? Our experiences are informed and primed by our prior understanding of the world, often in ways we don't fully grasp or understand. And so if after talking through the end of history and class of civilizations, you're like, Shane, why do these guys matter? I'm bored. Um, It's because these are some of the hired bards in the imperial court who are spinning ideas that one way or another end up shaping how we experience and remember lived history. These are the types of guys who come up with the political myths that then can be draped around tragedies in order to pursue deeply evil political projects. So now, let's talk about those projects. So the War on Terror, or the Global War on Terror, or GWAT, as I've seen it sometimes as an acronym, is, in my mind, probably like the greatest ongoing criminal enterprise of the 21st century. Um, It's so insidious and evil that I sometimes have a hard time wrapping my head around it, and it's like that idea that I brought up on the show a number of times, super liminal, it's, it's too big to fathom, but apparently, as we've seen recently, not necessarily too big to fail, um, and we've talked about this a lot on the show in various amounts of details covering different characters who played the most prominent parts, um, but like any large-scale imperial project, there are tens of thousands of middle managers and bureaucrats who, in my mind, are also to blame... Um, those are the kinds of guys that are, like, deeply influenced by the essays I was talking about, and, you know, at the end of the day, I I mentioned at the top of the episode it's too much to cover exhaustively everything with the war on terror in this time, so I'm just gonna hit some of the basics here, and for simplicity's sake, I'll split this section into talking about the war on terror in, on the international stage, and then the domestic, and although, of course, they both interlap and they're interconnected, but, um, so, Internationally, what are we talking about? The attacks of september eleventh happen, and then five days later, Bush comes out and announces that his administration's response will be a war on terrorism. In the same sentence, he calls it a crusade. Within another week they issue an ultimatum to the Taliban government in Afghanistan. The Taliban responds with a counter offer, tries to negotiate, US says we refuse to negotiate, and instead and launches an invasion of the country with support from its NATO allies within a few more weeks. After the invasion, the goalposts are immediately moved from like catching bin Laden and stopping al-Qaeda, then to defeating the Taliban, then to setting up a friendly government, then to protecting that government, and a sort of nation-building project, and we know a lot of the story from here. Of course... At the time, this is all framed as a direct response to 9-11 itself, but we now know, and we've known empirically for over like a decade now, that much of the logic behind the war in Afghanistan and the subsequent war in Iraq and elsewhere was already in motion way before then. And a nice summation of this (laughs) kind of logic and and the proof behind this can be found in this uh, Democracy Now! interview with uh, General Wesley Clark that was done in 2007, which I'll read from here. So this is uh, the general speaking, quote, about 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who used to work for me. And one of the generals called me in. He said, sir, you've got to come in and talk to me for a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq? Why? He said, I don't know. I guess they don't know what else to do. So I said, well, did they find some information connecting Saddam to Al Qaeda? He said, no, no. There's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And then he said, I guess if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, Are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, Oh, it's worse than that. He reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just got this from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office, today. And he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, don't show it to me. And I saw him a year or so ago and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. End quote. So, of course, this story has been contested and denied and whatever. Uh, there's reasonable elements to question maybe Wesley Clark's motivations himself, but I would say only in the sense that, like, it was probably worse, right? <laughs> if, if, if he's lying here, he's probably, like, covering up other shit. Um, and the rationale given here, uh, you know, for sort of expanding the war simply to maybe, to, like, look good as a PR thing, but there, we know in reality there are a host of other reasons to go into Iraq and... And the other countries mentioned, and we talked about this on our Dick Cheney episode about some of those, so go back to listen to that if you're interested. You know the deal, privatizing control of much of the world's energy supply, um, what have you. So shortly after the Afghan war started, the Bush regime shifts its rhetoric to be more expansive, specifically targeting Iraq, but also Iran, North Korea, and a couple of the other countries mentioned there. And the Axis of Evil line comes first, I believe it was the 2002 State of the Union address. So that would put it like only two or three months into the bombing of Afghanistan. Um, and by the way, David Frum is the one credited with coming up with that line, Axis of Evil. Um, so you probably remember this speech, uh, and it's essentially this declaration of a new international posture generated under this theory of rogue states, which I've definitely mentioned before on the show. I forget exactly where, but briefly the idea is like there are different types of states in the world, categorized more or less along the lines of their cooperation with the American Empire. So those who refuse to cooperate are designated as rogue states, or terrorist states, or you know criminal states, or whatever, and they're defined as the arbiters of all evil and terrorism in the world. It's worth noting that this idea first came into vogue in the Reagan administration, as did the Lexicon of the War on Terror. and pretty much every other awful fucking thing to come out of the American right for like the past 40 years. But in any case, it's at this point that it becomes the de facto position of the United States that they can just designate any country in the world as being part of a baseless international terrorist conspiracy. And so the first three countries mentioned in the axis of evil are Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. And the idea that even like the first two, (laughs) Iraq and Iran, would be serious partners in any endeavor after fighting a bloody fucking 10-year war which the united states was involved in um and pushed for but you know it's, it's just blatantly ahistorical so it's just like very clear the most obvious lies and propaganda um and it's also the same kind of racist association that we saw from huntington right like hey both of these countries are just predominantly muslim they're both in the middle east so who cares about what any of the differences are they all look the same from where i'm sitting And so thus, the war on terror expands, as we all know, unfortunately, into then what becomes the invasion and subsequent occupation and war in Iraq. It starts in 2003. We know the lies that were peddled about weapons of mass destruction, the underlying motivations having little to do with terrorism or al-Qaeda, but more oil profits and settling the decade-old score with Saddam. And if it were not for the unbelievable bloodbath that ensued post-invasion, I think the Bush administration probably would have continued unilaterally to go into those uh, host of other countries that Wesley Clark mentioned um, in this sort of like one-by-one memo we're going to take them out. Um, But luckily or unluckily, depending on how you look at it, the American military eviscerated Iraq and then stoked a civil war, and the after-effects... everyone continues to deal with to this day. And so, again in our episodes on Cheney and elsewhere in the program, we've covered about how some of that has played out. Um the butcher Rumsfeld gets the blame and is ousted, and then a rotating series of replacements for him and the military commanders on the ground are churned through the impossible and cruel conflicts in Iraq and in Afghanistan. In 2004 and 2008, presidential elections are framed in part as referendums on these foreign wars. And after first failing, the opposition party takes power in 2009 with Barack Obama as president. The theme of the campaign is hope and change, but many of the promises to wind down the wars take a backseat to the emerging recession. And So in 2011, the United States, and NATO again this time, um, add a murderous air campaign, an intervention in Libya... Uh, to their caps, and this is amidst the outbreak of unrest that is called the uh, Arab Spring. The Pentagon and the various military intelligence agencies of the United States start arming all different sides in the burgeoning Syrian civil war that starts going on around the same time. The summer of 2011, the administration oversees the widely publicized and celebrated assassination of Bin Laden in Pakistan. Obama comes out and he does this whole like imperial announcement on TV. <laughs> I remember watching it, with just so much anger. Um, and so then later that year, all, quote, combat troops are withdrawn from Iraq, so that's the end of 2011. And then another election comes, Obama remains president, in part due to the emphasis of being, like, a smarter executor of the war on terror. And that's a pun intended, by the way. Um... In the summer of 2013, Obama declares the war on terror over, in the sense that it's no longer a war per se, just a series of militarized intelligence operations. Overseas military contingencies um, is uh, often what they like to call it, not wars. And then in uh, 2014, the administration announces the end of the combat mission in Afghanistan. (laughs) And I think, um, you know, it being 2021, we all know in part how that went. Um, I guess if you were a soldier fighting on whatever side from 2014 till now in the war in Afghanistan, you weren't actually engaging in combat, but a combat-related activity. Around this time, Syria spills over to Iraq, leading to the emergence of the Islamic State or ISIS, which, well, we can't have that, can we? So, the administration begins yet another war in Iraq and Syria, this time to fight ISIS. Look, this is a lot to throw out, and I'm not even getting into all of the specifics or the other sides in the conflict or the regional powers and everything. Um, but the point that I hope I'm getting across is that fundamentally, right, even though there are all these discrete periods over the last 20 years of like, this is when this conflict started, and this is when this one started, and this is when it ended, and this is when another one began, it is my belief that these are all fundamentally part of the same conflict, right? We, under, we, we know that they are. They're, they're all interrelated. The same causes and effects, the same overlapping things are happening. Most of the times, the same actors, at least insofar as the United States is concerned. Um, and that's not to downplay the agency of the political actors the, on the ground and the people who live in that region of the world. But I do definitely assert that the intensity and prolonged nature of the kind of broader conflict in the Middle East over the last 20 years is largely driven by United States intervention of various kinds. And Obama may have declared the war on terror over in 2013, but it never ended. It's still here. The Trump administration certainly revived the lingo of it. Um, and lingo or not, the fucking wars are still going on. They're, they keep killing. Um, uh, yeah, even with the withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years, having accomplished basically nothing except bloodshed, much of the dc foreign policy think tank bubble is still pounding on the door for more blood it is a clash of civilizations we cannot let it go um but before i get away from it i did want to mention one more thing about the obama administration's special contribution to the war on terror or more the thing he became notorious for and as i said uh you know the rhetorical framing of his administration tried to pivot away from large-scale conflicts in exchange for quote Smarter means of fighting terror um if you recall in the uh bomb episode, if you listen to that, I talked about um how they they there was like a linguistic change during the Second World War to go from like bombing to strategic bombing, um, which is basically you just add a word onto something to soften it and make it sound more precise, but you don't actually change anything it's the same thing when we say like we have to fight the war smarter it's the same thing or like a smart bomb um in any case. <laughs> But the idea that, like, oh, my administration will fight this smarter, like, do <laughs> you notice how the, the concept of fighting terror in and of itself is taken as this, like, unshakable axiom? Like, of course, we know that fighting terror is essential to America's role. Like, that's what we do. We, we fight terror. The debate is about how to do it, not whether or not we do it. Um, so how do we do it? Do we do it— All the way in, or do we do it in this kind of, like, cloak-and-dagger smart way? Sounds a little bit like the distinction between the end of history and the clash of civilizations, no? No, 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 there's no clash anymore, you know, it's just the slow incorporation of all the periphery territories into the Empire. Very, very smart, very smartly done. Um, and so, in any case, with Obama, there was the dial-down of large-scale combat operations, but also simultaneously an expansion of a global assassination program, and although this took many forms, the most notorious and well-known is the drone program, and to really do this, any justice would require its own like multi-hour episodes so i'll just assume listeners are familiar with the idea and if you want an exhaustive rundown of how it works i recommend looking at the work of jeremy scahill in general who's been covering this stuff uh as well as other elements of the war on terror for the past decade or so um it's fantastic journalism and in 2015 he published in the intercept a comprehensive breakdown of how the program worked internally they had some like leaked documents called the drone papers and i'll link the whole piece in the show notes but i'll just read a little bit from the introduction here quote from his first days as commander-in-chief the drone has been president barack obama's weapon of choice used by the military and the cia to hunt down and kill the people his administration has deemed through secretive processes without indictment or trial worthy of execution. There has been intense focus on the technology of remote killing, but that often serves as a surrogate for what should really be a broader examination of the state's power over life and death. Drones are a tool, not a policy. The policy is assassination. End quote. Um, I think that sums it up nicely. Uh, you know, the idea of like a unilateral unjustified wanted global assassination program that can go anywhere it's not exactly what i would call putting an end to war um now remember a bit ago i talked about the bush administration's sort of like weird secret plan for hitting seven countries right you know starting with iraq and then going after a bunch of them and how then the actual war in iraq sort of put an end to the possibility of that idea uh because it turned out to just be a lot harder than they expected Well, would you believe that if you take a cross-section of the map where the Obama administration's drones were conducting strikes, it lines up pretty nicely with most of that same list? Um, We may not have invaded Libya or Yemen or Pakistan or Syria or Somalia, but we did bring the war on terror to them in horrifying ways. And even with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it seems unlikely that, quote, smarter interventions, quote, like these, are coming off the table. And so to wrap up this section, it's important to talk about the cost of all this. And I don't just mean money. Uh, Of course, who is getting paid and why is a very important piece of the puzzle, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But in discussing all of this in the context of the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, I think it's a little too... I don't know, like, myopic and self-centering to focus solely on how much American treasure has been squandered on this disastrous project. It's, it's good to keep account of it, but that shouldn't be the immediate focus. Um, and, you know, calculating deaths alone also runs the risk of being, like, too statistical or leaving out the other ways that conflicts cause suffering. But it's the best I could do at this moment in, in this summary, and so I want to give you guys a sense of what some of the big-picture numbers are. So so there is this report from the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, uh, came out just over a week ago, aptly titled Human Cost of Post-9-11 Wars, which I'll include in the show notes, and it gives the uh, following figures. <clears throat> so the total dead in Afghanistan is estimated around 176,000, with about 46,000 or 26% being civilians. Total dead in Iraq is estimated to be between 275,000 and 306,000 with between 185 to 208,000 or 2 thirds of that being civilians. About 67,000 killed in Pakistan, 266,000 killed in Syria, 112,000 killed in Yemen, totaling for around over 900,000 dead across all the countries listed in this report. Um, now unfortunately you might notice that some of this sounds low and that's likely due to the fact that it is this is accounting just for direct war deaths there's some stuff going on in the methodology here Um, and often that can mean that it doesn't take into account all the other types of killing that occurs in chaotic war zones that is deliberately obfuscated rhetorically by the people reporting it so it doesn't show up on like official military reports In addition to that, that's still just talking about killing. The numbers really don't reflect things like deaths from diseases, famine, lack of all types of essential resources created by war, contamination by war materials, by products, remember those burn pits we talked about in the Cheney episode, or like depleted uranium shells, shit like that, um... Doesn't take into account, like, displacement. Um, You know, millions and millions of people have been displaced from all the countries here mentioned. Um, That causes death, not to mention suffering, trauma, difficulties of all kinds. Um, Doesn't include the targeted assassinations from drone strikes. and for that, I will turn to this little blog piece from the Council on Foreign Relations from 2017. And, you know, the CFR is not exactly the most reliable source or the my go-to. Um, and I typically assume they have a wide variety of reasons to lie about all kinds of shit, but most likely in the direction of, like, trying to soften the blow. So again, if these figures are off from this report, it likely means that they're just, like, low. Like, they're being deliberately kept low. But In this report, it estimates that out of 542 officially recorded targeted drone strikes carried out under the Obama administration, an estimated 3,797 people were killed, including 324 civilians. So like 8-10% to of the people officially acknowledged to be killed by drones then were civilians. Smarter warfare indeed. And you can, of course, plug that number into your how many people died on 9-11 calculator. Um, it's, it's difficult to calculate exactly, um, and, and we may never know the exact numbers. But I think it's fair to say that at least a million people were directly killed as a result of the war on terror. Likely hundreds of thousands to millions more died indirectly as a result. Um, and many many more millions suffered horribly either through other kinds of physical injuries and stuff uh or just again like the fucking psychological and lifelong trauma that it is to live in a war zone like a whole generation of war in some of these places um and any discussion of the legacy or anniversary of 9-11 has to include that that element that tragic loss of life um So, how are you feeling? Um, I am doing great, thinking about all of this in one sitting. Um, I am going to come back to what this terror looks like from a personal point of view, because I think that's also very important. So, please forgive me for now, but I want to get to the next section where I want to talk about like the domestic stuff very briefly. Um, but before I move away from discussing the cost of the war... We'll briefly talk about money, and we've all heard the numbers, like, you know, it's in the trillions, however you want to measure it. You can think about the waste that represents, or every lie, if you're on the left, you've ever heard about how such and such universal welfare program can't be afforded. Oh, we can't give people housing or healthcare because there's no money, and then you look at, like, just, like, a fucking whole pile of trillions of dollars being set on fire. Um, very upsetting, so... We know that, hopefully, unfortunately, by now. But in the midst of those big numbers, there are some smaller ones, and important ones that sometimes slip through the cracks. So I just will uh, point you in the direction of these two headlines from articles that came out recently, and you can uh, take a look at them. I'll include them in the show notes. Um, The first is from The Intercept uh, this year, in August, titled, quote, $10,000 $10,000 invested in defense stocks when Afghanistan war began, now worth almost $100,000. Was the Afghanistan war a failure? Not for the top 5 defense contractors and their shareholders," quote. And so that's written up by John Schwartz, and it gives a good breakdown of how our friends at Lockheed and uh, General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman all made literal killings on the wars. Uh the next one I'll point you to is by Isaac Stanley Becker from the Washington Post that came out just this week. Uh, Titled, quote, Corporate Boards Consulting Speaking Fees, How U.S. Generals Thrived After Afghanistan. Stanley A. McChrystal exemplifies how ex-generals sell their battlefield experience in other arenas from corporations to COVID-19 response, end quote. Uh, So this piece gives a nice breakdown of McChrystal's post-military activities, talks about the revolving door that we've talked about on the show. Um, And so again, I'll drop both of those in the description here maybe those are something i would love to like hear dwight in particular (laughs) just like scream as we read through those so maybe we'll do those on a later patreon as a group but i think you get the idea for now um so let's turn to the domestic side of the war on terror and i imagine this part will be a little shorter um i'm coming up on an hour here so because of that uh and then also again like the stuff i want to talk about here is all stuff we've lived through um so, I'm going to break this down even further, make it simple, and so I'll talk about like the legal side and then the cultural side. Um, so, here we go. In the legal dimension, the war on terror ushered in an insane deluge of new laws, security protocols, and a general emboldening and militarization of domestic security, surveillance, and police, the creation of new agencies like ICE and the DHS, which... Taken as a whole have fundamentally been used to terrorize people in the United States. And as always, that means marginalized groups and communities of color get hit the hardest. Now, like much of this, the most notorious elements of the reinvigorated security state came in that early period just after 9-11. So we've talked about it on the show, you remember it from your life, the color-coded terror system, Uh, terrorists lurking in every corner, anthrax in the mail, the Patriot Act, unwarranted and blanket FBI surveillance of Muslim communities of worship, the suspension of habeas corpus, Guantanamo Bay, militarizing the southern border under the guise of stopping terrorism, and then drugs, and then terrorists armed with drugs, coming for white children. The TSA making grandma get out of the goddamn wheelchair to get on the plane. Um, All manner of harassment ranging from the annoying to the lethal, from old and new groups of petty sheriffs and small town tyrants in all walks of life. All forms of dissent being censored from the mainstream media as the basic premise of the liberal frame of constitutional rights were just like fucking torn to shreds. Treason became something talked about openly and regularly, both in the halls of power and in public forums and on TV, while torture became euphemized into the legal form of enhanced interrogation techniques. Political opponents, ranging from environmentalists, later to Occupy or the anti-war movement, became labeled as domestic terrorists. Um, Did I miss anything? How about the perpetual and permanent wholesale surveillance of every electronic communication in the country? And people are afraid of, like, a fucking vaccine. (laughs) Like, the government is already tracking you. Okay, whatever. Um, In any case, any single one of these things constitutes just, like, a drastic and very serious shift in how the political order addresses its subjects. And now, most of it is more or less just, like, part of the background of our political and legal systems. Um... You know, the move Obama made in prosecuting the war on terror more intelligently, more smartly, never even pretended to reverse any of this domestically or challenge it or hold it accountable. You know, it was like, you know, we just got to move on. We got to move forward. Just everything is everything through bureaucratic sludge can never be removed. Um, And so like the wars, right, it was just like expanded. But it's all right because, you know, we have like a great guy is the president and if the democrats just hold on to the presidency forever right like we can manage this like techno authoritarian security state like pretty good right it's not like we'll get some insane like right-wing talk show host to become president and so before i jump to trump let's talk about the cultural side of things because the two are very much linked um so concurrent to all that shit i just mentioned that occurred in the realm of official lawmaking american culture likewise went totally fucking insane post 9-11 and we all know the ridiculous examples we've talked about them on the show people have been sharing them on twitter for the past week um they'll continue to do so uh they're very weird very funny you remember them um my personal favorite piece of like sociological propaganda were like pizza boxes in new york city um They all, like, across all the, like, non-chain pizza places, you know, there's, like, a million Joes, right? They all, like, after 9-11, they got this, like, pizza box. And there were, like, different designs. So that means, like, multiple pizza box-making companies were putting out different, like, 9-11 commemorative pizza boxes where it would have, instead of just, like, pizza on the cover, it would be, like, the Twin Towers maybe like a heart like i heart new york i or like never forget remember 9-11 um sometimes it would be like the twin towers and pizza which is even better um and uh you know uh will we'll move past this stuff but if you have some particularly weird examples that you remember that we haven't talked about on the show yet um you know drop them in the comments here i'd, I'd love to see them but so you know most of the weirdest cultural tidbits came from those first few years um but just like the legal stuff, they never went away. Uh, they just simmered into the background of the culture. And in a way, we like all lost track of their origins rather quickly. There's so much weird stuff and like ways that uh, the impact of that in like terms of what the political culture is in the country now that is it's, it's always like, oh, where did this come from? And it's like, dude, it was 9-11. <laughs> Do you not remember before that? Um, I mean, the most dangerous of all these trends, which continues to this day, is like at first like the very aggressive, but then the, the slow and subtle militarization of American culture in all of its facets, right? Like support our troops went from like a campaign slogan to a news chyron to a bumper sticker to just like a self-evident fact about the society, just a truism, like of course support our troops. Um, and this idea very easily bled into the valorization of the police Cops' troops, the thin blue line, security as heroism, and heroes as mythic figures. And so for all the talk that I've seen in like journalism and academia about political polarization because of social media or Twitter or whatever, right? I can't help but think back to like 2004 and like the culture war was raging in full. It was probably more intense than it has been even recently, right? Like in the the midst of the Iraq war, it was like you were either a red-blooded American patriot cowboy or you were a cheese-eating surrender monkey who might as well be a terrorist himself. And this shit has lasting impacts on the culture as a whole, but also like our brains, Um, people just went insane, and they did not come back. Not to mention the xenophobia and racism, which is always a perennial favorite of American culture, but it was certainly stoked and directed in new ways by the war on terror. Anti-Islamic sentiment, for example, shot through the roof, and suddenly, if you were watching the news every night, which I did as, as a kid you got the sense that there was some kind of massive clash of civilizations occurring between freedom-loving America and the ignorant backwards rest of the world in particular um the islamic world which also again was homogeneously imagined right um this is how that an essay like that an idea like that becomes part of the culture and then it's like nobody know you don't we don't all talk about samuel huntington and luckily now he's dead so we don't have to but like you know, that, that, that there's certainly a connection there. Um, I wonder where all those pundits got that idea from, right? It's like, oh, suddenly it's just in the ether. Um, so I'm breathing through some of this because it's familiar territory, but let's do like a quick calculation and recap here. So what is this a recipe for? Let's take a look at all the ingredients one by one. So one, you have the militarization of culture militarization of the security state militarization of the police two you have intensely drawn self-identification along largely ethno-nationalist lines and increased xenophobia three a general blanket paranoia about everything and everyone involving widely accepted and even officially sanctioned conspiracies about international and domestic threats Four, rising economic inequality, eventually leading to a great recession, large groups of dispossessed and disenfranchised people. And then five, all the while, in the background, you have ongoing and purposeless wars, killing millions and bringing home disillusioned and frustrated veterans who are simultaneously heroized but not taken care of, actually. And I think if you look at those five two points, it's almost like, to a T, five of the 14 points that Umberto Eco lays out in his treatise "Er Ur-Fascism that are, like, the defining constituent elements of what makes, like, a fascist movement. Now, of course, a lot of these things that popped up in the culture post-9-11 weren't entirely new. I mean, even on a legal or international level, like, American empire is not entirely new. Racism, xenophobia, horrendous and genocidal wars— the horrific brutality inflicted on marginalized groups, people of color, under the guise of security and protection, not new. But post-9-11, all of this definitely took on a new kind of intensity. And perhaps a better way to think of it is that like, it didn't introduce these things to the culture, but it activated them. It combined them. It gave them specific and official political articulations. And I believe, I really do, that there's a direct line between that moment 20 years ago, or really more its immediate aftermath. From there to the reemergence of openly fascistic, reactionary politics in the United States and more broadly, like the world, um, and I'm not saying it's the only reason or the most important reason, and I don't care to make those kinds of like causal hierarchies, but the link is there. It's it's not for nothing that America's mayor became fucking Donald Trump's lawyer, right? <laughs> like there, there there's a very clear connection there, um, and in fact, drawing the that particular link is the subject of a really fantastic book that just came out by Spencer Ackerman called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Now, I have to confess, I'm still only partially through the book, so I can't give full judgment. Um, It's just been such a busy time at the start of semester, but it really is great so far, and I would be remiss if I did not read at least a portion of the introduction here. Trump understood something about the war on terror that they did not, and they here means his um, political opponents, specifically his liberal opponents. He recognized that the 9-11 era's grotesque subtext, the perception of non-whites as marauders, even as conquerors from hostile foreign civilizations, was its engine. As much as Trump shifted his positions on this or that conflict, he never wavered on that crucial insight. Appearing on Howard Stern's radio show for the first anniversary of 9-11, during a period when U.S. foreign policy was the geopolitical equivalent of a psychotic episode, Trump surveyed all the changes to national security and lamented, I'm not sure things are any tougher. His problem was that the psychosis he encouraged had revealed not the might of America, but its weakness. For those millions of Americans who demanded vengeance for 9-11, and then for the United States compounded misfortunes in seeking it, the forever war brought only the pain and humiliation of attaining neither peace nor victory. The pursuit of vengeance not only created new enemies that America failed to vanquish, it also created more ambitious ones who had their own ideas about vengeance. Yet it was beyond the limits of respectable discourse to blame the forever war for giving birth to new generations of forever enemies. The agony of the war outlasted the enthusiasm of the political, media, cultural, and intellectual elites who had hailed it as the great war of our time, a grand national, even civilizational, crusade against something Islamic that hated freedom, or at the very least hated America. In the early years after 9-11, they even treated the open-ended nature of the war as a virtue, a Kennedy-esque challenge for a reunited America that was finished with the frivolity of the 1990s, something that could prove America could again accomplish anything, no matter how arduous the struggle. Even after that delusion died in Iraq, the fallback position among the politically powerful was that extrication was more dangerous than quagmire. A circumscribed managed quagmire could even ultimately comport with America's broader hegemonic position of open-ended foreign deployments pursued in the name of what Washington called the rules-based international order. Those elites were so implicated in providing neither peace nor victory that it would be very easy to discredit them in the eyes to those of whom that was intolerable, the people who had listened to what they said. Being unable to defeat this something Islamic was intolerable for a people accustomed to thinking of itself as exceptional, for whom uncontested American supremacy had existed long enough to appear as inevitable as the weather. The painful condition of neither peace nor victory against an enemy seen as practically subhuman itself required vengeance. Trump offered himself as its instrument. Declaring his presidential candidacy in his golden tower, he asked, quote, when was the last time the U.S. won at anything, end quote. Um, And I I think that's a really just brilliant passage, and and, and what Ackerman's getting at there is like one of the core cultural legacies of the war on terror um, is failure and humiliation. See, on the left, like, we look at the national humiliation in in a certain way, right? We often see it as a vindication of our critique of the society. I mean, you know, like, uh, we live in a failed state. Uh, We're an empire that can't even do wars anymore. Um, You've heard all these kinds of thoughts. But on the right, when you're confronted with that failure, you have to grapple with, like, a deep cognitive dissonance, right? Like, if this is indeed the clash of civilizations, how can we be losing? The simple answer is that someone, or more specifically a group of people, is to blame. Um, And it's in this feeling of deep shame and humiliation that the fascist promise of a national rebirth best takes root. Now, Trump himself, whatever, who cares? He's like hosting a boxing match, I think, today, which is in its own right extremely funny and stupid and weird, but he was always just like an avatar for those feelings. He did not produce them. I mean, as we've hammered to death on this program, most of Trump's so-called outrageous rhetoric is just like dumber, jokier, simpler versions of the same talking points Fox News has been pumping out for over a decade. It's the movement that galvanized around him, whatever you want to call it. That's a big part of the legacy of 9-11. And so the last thing I'll mention here in this section on thinking through the cultural element of all this is the idea of myth. So... 9-11 9-11 and all of its attendant accoutrement became something very sacred for a while in American culture, and it still is, depending on who you talk to. But the fervor has definitely waned a bit. Um, Never Forget is more often used as an ironic joke nowadays, although I'm sure the hardcore reactionaries still love to throw it around. And I do think it's in general, like, a good tactic to try to undermine the quasi-spiritual magic that this largely vapid phrase tries to invoke, um... But at the same time, I would offer a way to reclaim it, or at least reclaim the concept that it supposedly stands for. I mean, like, when never forget is used as a slogan, it is often meant just as like, it's like an anti-intellectual cudgel. Like, how dare you tarnish the memory? Or maybe it's an admonishment, like, you know, don't forget to say your prayers, never forget. Um, And so that element, we can just throw in the dustbin of history. Thank you very much. But the basic notion of holding remembrance, um, in a way where you're not trying to just like commemorate or or parrot the past, but understand it and interpret it and think about it, that to me is very important. So I'll turn here in my conclusion uh, to come back around to this idea of living through history. And, um, you know, I debated for a while whether or not I was going to include this, but I, I think it's it'll be useful to talk a little bit about my memories of that day and, and some of the reflection of how it's impacted my life. Um, and this is a little hard for me to talk about, honestly. So if I seem brief or curt in this section, it's just because this is difficult. Um, so, as listeners of the show probably know by now, I grew up in New York. Hey, yo, this guy, you don't say, hey, best city. Um, uh, specifically, lower Manhattan. I live with my mom, my dad, and my sister in low-income artist housing on the west side. And I was about, like, two miles away from the World Trade Center. Um, I went to elementary school as a little kid, probably, like, it was like five or six blocks away. Uh, we used to go on school trips there. Um, I think at least one time we went to like the upper observation deck or whatever that used to be there. Um, my mom worked <laughs> in one of the offices there, um, and like the, the the Twin Towers were like literally my hometown horizon. It was part of my reality. It was the literal visual background to my world. I could always see it in that little area that i grew up in and so um when i was like five or six i read that manga comic i had mentioned in the bomb episode barefoot Gen, which is like the autobiography about the um the the kid who who grows up during the hiroshima attack um and you know it freaked me the fuck out i was like really little when i read that and i don't know if you could tell but ever since then i've been a pretty paranoid person about certain kinds of things specifically nukes um and it got me at an early age, in a very limited way, obviously, interested in history. And I remember thinking through in some form or another that like being at the end of the 20th century felt like... It felt like the end of something, um, the end of history, I don't know, but it's probably why I was, like, so fascinated later in life to discover some asshole wrote that idea into foreign policy, because that's what the culture felt, it did feel like a Pax Americana, like, everything's, like, done and complete, and really all there is left is, like, consumer products, um... And so in any case, uh, I was 11 years old on September 11th and it was like my second day of middle school and my dad came to pull me out of class. And I remember I was really scared. Like I said, my mom had worked in the towers. I thought she was dead. Um, he like took me back home. She was there. She had like called out sick that day. It was really, you know, serendipitous or whatever. And we went up to the roof of the building that we lived in you had a clear view of the towers and we used to hang up there you know just like have a picnic or whatever on the roof of the building um and so i had like a perfect view of the the towers like smoldering and and i saw right there like the entire sense of security i had as a little kid just like collapse in front of me um it was so horrific, man. It really like freaked me the fuck out. I was, I was terrified for like a week. I wouldn't leave my room. Um, and of course there was a lot of commotion. You know, I, a lot of my family friends, some, some had died, some like their houses were destroyed. They ended up having to move and there was all this shit happening in those first couple of weeks. And I was just so filled with panic. I was so scared. Um, and, You know, it took me later in life to realize that that was, like, PTSD that I was going through, right? Um, And I I didn't even realize it at the time, but I remember being so fucking, like, angry and, 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 and confused and scared. And so, you know, when the War on Terror started going in full, right, like my family had like Fox on a lot and we were watching it and there was a certain vibe in New York at the time and it was seemed very convincing, right? Especially to me, I already had, was having apocalyptic visions of the world like, oh, fuck, this is, this is serious. Like some shit's going down. Um, and I was really, really scared. And in, that, in those moments of fear, like I gave myself over to like, you know, those familiar feelings of patriotism or, or security or whatever. And, you know, I was so angry for so much of my life. Um, And it was much later than when I was like in my 20s, really around the 10th anniversary of of 9 11, where I started thinking through all this stuff because it started to come up again. And I realized like I was so fucking angry because I'd never processed any of those feelings. And then. I had known intuitively at some level that, like, those feelings of genuine fear and, and anguish and sadness that I had had been manipulated by this big political order to pursue, like, a horrible project of, of expansionist wars. Then at that at that point, you know, I had friends who were, like, enlisted and were fighting in the Middle East and stuff, and I was just like, oh, fuck, like, it, it all started to make sense to me, and it was that realization— That not only helped me get through that, but that was... That was my radicalization point, right? Sometimes people ask you that. What was the 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 switch? And it was somewhere around there where it just, it all clicked for me. And I really remember that uh, the assassination of Bin Laden too, like being so angry. It was like right when I was at the cusp of it, like watching Obama talking about it, but just being so fucking angry and realizing, because it was so hollow, it was such a hollow promise that it was over. And the idea that like, we should all celebrate the murder of somebody, whoever he is, right? Like that that, that should be part of the culture. That should be part of our enjoyment. So in any case... Um, you know that was that was part of my path towards uh, uh, thinking differently about my world, and eventually getting into more radical and left wing politics, um, in an earnest way. And uh, even as I did, and I pursued that, and I tried to get involved in anti war stuff and whatever else was going on. Um, you know, I, I I was trying to incorporate my understanding of history into into the conflicts that were going abroad. I was I was really trying at that young age to get a sense of what was going on in the Middle East. And um You know, I, I think I've always tried to be at least sympathetic or empathetic or whatever with people who are going through war situations, but it's but it's hard. It's it's really hard to actually to to have that moment of intense realization and connection. And and I think part of it for me too is that in the context of 9-11, right, like it was still so personal and, and, and filled with investment with me. And I think I, I remember thinking about that phrase, never forget, and, and how it started to piss me off and, and that also being part of the fulcrum of what ended up getting me on, onto a different path. And I, and I think the reason why it angered me so much is because I wanted to be able to forget. Like, that was so, that was so fucked up, you guys. (laughs) Like, to see that. And, and, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody has like fucked up things that they go through in life. I'm not trying to act like. You know, uh, it's uniquely special or whatever, but it's like any traumatic thing, right? Like, you wish you could undo it. You wish you could get it out of your system. Sometimes, even now, just talking about it, it's literally 20 years later. I'm an adult man. I have other shit going on. I get shaky thinking about it. I get scared. I still have those feelings of tremors. It's involuntary, and I i wish I could let go of it. And I used to remember thinking that, like the culture won't let go of it. Like, the culture is just repeating, even just the image, right? And going back to the beginning of the episode, I was talking about this kind of collected, shared memory. That's constructed, and it was constructed by the media, and it was pushed to scare people. And it's that element. It's that element of the saccharine, sacred, never-forget shit that I hated so much because I wanted to forget. I just wanted to let it go. Um... And then one day... I uh, saw something in the news um, in 2013. This uh, young boy from Pakistan, Zubair, who was 13 years old at the time, um, and his little sister, Nabila, who was 9 years old, um, went to testify in Congress uh, about um, the U.S. drone program um, in uh in Pakistan. Um, their, their grandmother had been killed, I think the previous year in an attack. Um, pretty much the entire, uh, Congress did not show up. I think there were only five people actually showed up to, to hear their testimony. And over the course of, um, uh, Zubair talking about, uh, his experience, um, you know, having gone through that, the, the trauma of, you know, being injured in an attack and watching a family member die, um, he said uh, or rather, the translation of uh, what he said was um, quote: "I no longer love blue skies. I prefer gray skies. The drones do not fly when the skies are gray, and for a short period of time, the mental tension and fear eases. But when the sky brightens, the drones return. And then, so does the fear end quote, and um I think, like you know in any circumstance you, you hear that, how can your your heart not open up and, and go out and I think for me in particular it it was such a clear rendition, probably clearer than I would have able to have been um you know when I was that age, and I was had my own kind of PTSD thing going on, realizing like that that's terror that's a that's a lifelong terror that uh our imperial project put in that young boy and for what right um and so i think when i heard that it's kind of on my own like i'll never forget that and uh i i don't want to forget that (laughs) um And if, if you're hearing this, and I know it's sad and it's and it's hard to think about, but um, I'm asking you to never forget that um, and, and to think about that and, and to bear that in mind. And I think that's the way that, you know, not in a way to celebrate or commemorate or even just to be like whatever, I don't know, purely sentimental about human suffering, but to really try to have empathy and realize like, if there is a way out of this, if, if there is a way out of the forever war <laughs> the war on terror, uh, it has to start from a place of empathy. Um, and, and I think that's where our politics should start as well. Or, you know, we can just do the opposite of that and situate our politics in uh, continual war drum beating for more blood um, wrapped in some ridiculous pantomime of American identity for the rest of our goddamn lives. And in that vein, I will play us out with uh, Toby Keith, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, otherwise known as the Angry American. Um, thanks for listening
1: and stay cool, folks. American girls and American salute we'll always recognize when we see your glory flying there's a lot of men dead so we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads my daddy served in the army where he lost his right eye but he flew a flag out in our yard till the day that he died he wanted my mother my brother my sister and me to grow up and live happy in the land of the free now this nation that i love is falling under attack a mighty sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye man we lit up your world like the Fourth of you Statue, Liberty started shaking. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage And you'll be sorry that you mess with The U.S. of Eight. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass It's the American way Uncle sound, put your name At the top of his list And the statue of liberty started shaking